This is the last in our series of why I believe, and um, each week I've been showing you some books that I hope will encourage you to do some extra reading. All of these are available through the bookstore. If they don't have them in stock, they can get them in a couple days, and so you can get them through there. Also, if you forget, well, what was that he was talking about? They are online, so you can go on to the church website and check out uh, these books and get the titles again. Uh, here are a couple books that I think are really good. If you kind of want an overview of everything we've been talking about over the last few weeks, Dr. James Kennedy wrote uh, two books, What If the Bible Had Never Been Written and What If Jesus Had Never Been Born. Great books uh, to read. Then here are a few others uh, for your research and study. Today, we're talking a little bit about life after death, and this is a great book, Randy Alcorn, Heaven. And uh, if you want to just get some insights and possibilities about what heaven is, take a look at that one. If you're still struggling a little bit with the historical nature of Jesus, was he really a person of history? Dr. Gary Habermas writes this one, uh, The Historical Jesus, excellent book and resource. And then anything that uh, Charles Colson writes is always good. And this one in particular is called Burden of Truth, and he deals with the whole concept of our understanding of truth today. And our understanding of truth impacts a whole lot of what we believe and why we believe it. So any of these books, again, I would encourage you to pick up in the bookstore. Uh, do your own digging and research and reading because I, I just can't give you but a taste uh, in this process. Last week also, I was um, showing you just a clip out of that uh, YouTube video, uh, Zeitgeist, and uh, we found a website this week where a man has gone through all of the claims of that entire um, movie and, and disproved them and dispelled them. He's showing the evidence that they aren't true. Uh, you can look that up on this particular website, and if you don't have time to get that down on a piece of paper, your bulletin this morning, again, that'll be also on the uh, list there uh, on the church uh, website. I actually had a, a couple who originally were from India here last Sunday, and they came up to me after the service was over, and in that clip that I'd shown, there was a bit about Krishna, and they said that everything that was said in that video about the historical past of Krishna was also wrong. And so there was a, a testimony from folks who know because of where they grew up and where they live. So I'm telling you, just because you see something in a video, just because you read something in print, if there is no evidence offered, don't just assume it's true. Do your own digging, do your own study, and figure out, if it's truth, there will always be evidence of some kind for it. Well, this is the last in the series, and it's simply why I believe in life after death. You know, some suggest that we're born, we live, we die, that's it. Nothing more, nothing less, that the grave ends all, that it is the common denominator for all of humanity, that life is nothing more but decay and the emptiness of the grave is nothing more than the solace for all of our suffering in this world. Our only purpose then is to do just a little bit of good in the meager amount of time we spend on this planet. Does that depress anybody else? Is that the kind of thing that makes you want to hop out of bed on a Monday morning and say, all right, another week? Boy, it isn't me. I'm telling you what, I, it just, that is just dismal to, to think that that's all we've got. That all I have to look for in this life is painful arthritis, dying with clogged arteries, and being buried as an artifact. That's just not much to look forward to. And some say, well... Maybe we'll come back to this planet as a lesser life form, like an ant or a rat or a yak. Woohoo! 
Does that inspire any excitement or confidence? Man. Now granted, if there is no creator God and we are the product of random chance, then I suppose the pundits of such dismal forecasts are right. But every part of my being recoils at that thought that the grave ends all, that there is nothing more. In a Barna Group survey not long ago, these were the results of Americans surveyed about what they believe regarding life after death. 10% believe we return to earth in a different form. 10% believe that there is no life after death, period. 24% believe that the soul lives, but in a different place determined by past actions. 48% believe that we go to either heaven or hell depending on our confession of sins and the acceptance of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And the remaining 8% are simply undecided what they believe about life after death. The wise King Solomon wrote this incredible book called Ecclesiastes. And in this book, there is this beautiful poetic chapter, chapter 3. It's been set to music, I think, more than once. And, and you, you know the words to it. It begins like this in verse 1. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. There is a time to be born and a time to die. And then it goes on. There's a time for this and a time for that, a time for this and a time for that. Now I want to take you down to verse 11. And I want you to key in on what we read here. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now listen. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all of their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does this so people will fear him. And that word fear means respect him deeply. God does all of this so that we will be drawn to him, but he has also set eternity in our hearts. That explains the longing that is deep within the human soul that there is something beyond this life. Yeah, yeah, but, th but that's all from the Bible. I still have questions about that. Wasn't that book, the New Testament, all put together by Constantine, the emperor? I know I talked a lot about the Bible last week. Let me, let me just give you a couple other things. The answer to that is no, the New Testament was not assembled by Constantine. He had nothing to do with the New Testament or what we call the canon of Scripture. By the way, great care was used and rigid standards were enforced as this collection of books and letters were assembled that we call the New Testament. Now listen to me carefully. We may not have all of the inspired writings, but all the writings that we have, I believe, are inspired. What do I mean by that? I mean that Paul probably wrote more letters than what we have. Peter probably wrote more letters than what we have. I suspect those letters that we don't have were also inspired but we didn't have to have everything. What we've got, though, all that we have is inspired. It's God-breathed. It's his oracle. Most of us don't read the New Testament very much the way it is. What if it was two to three times as thick as it is? What if we had every letter? People wouldn't read it anymore. So we may not have all the inspired writings, but all the, all the writings we have are inspired 
And then some people say, well, the early church just put that together. Well, that's not really accurate either. The early church merely recognized the books and letters that were inspired from their inception. I like the way Josh McDowell puts it. He said, a book is not the word of God because it's accepted by the people of God. Rather, it is accepted by the people of God because it is the word of God. These letters and theses were written out by men who were recognized by the early church, men who had been with Jesus, men who had been eyewitnesses. The early church knew these men to be inspired writers of God. Well, yeah, but what about those discrepancies you talked about last week in the sermon? You did say, after all, there were discrepancies among the textual copies that we have. What if those discrepancies have to do with life after death issues? That's a good question. First of all, let me tell you this. None of those discrepancies have anything to do with the life after death questions. But you need to understand what kind of discrepancies these are. Because when we use the word discrepancy, we think of these major blunders. Let me give you an example of the kind of discrepancies that we find. This is a hypothetical example using Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. And it's, it's an example that Dr. Norman Geisler uses in his book, I, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Let, let's assume that we have four different manuscript copies that all have a discrepancy in Philippians 4.13. This is the way it would look, folks. So you got a discrepancy in the word things. The H is missing, the I is missing, the, the N is missing, the G is missing. Is there anybody that can't figure out what they meant? Is there any doubt that what that says is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? You see, the sheer volume of all of these copies confirms that we have what they intended for us to have. That's the level of most of the discrepancies. And again, I tell you that not one of them has anything to do with the issue of life after death. So why do I believe in life after death? You may say, oh, I know why you believe. It's because all those people have had near-death experiences and they're traveling down this dark tunnel and all of a sudden there's this burst of light and they explode into this area and they see all these happy people. Or, or how about that little boy in heaven is real? That's why you believe. Well, those are great stories. I, I love to read some of those stories. I love to hear people who have had those kinds of events and experiences in life, but that's not why I believe. If that's all I had, I would not be convinced. But I hope to be able to tell you why in a convincing manner. This epitaph was found on a woman's grave. She lived with her husband 50 years and died in the confident hope of a better life. <laughs> I think I know what the carver of that tombstone was trying to communicate, but it sure didn't come out very well. I hope I can present to you why I believe in a way that comes out well so that you know why I believe without any shadow of a doubt that the grave is not the end but maybe a brand new beginning. I believe in life after death because the word of God teaches me there is more. The quotes that we have from Jesus, what we have from the writings of Paul, are undeniable in their intent. For instance, Jesus promised that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's from John 3.16. It's the pearl of John's gospel that we would have eternal life. The Bible promises that in the Father's house there are many rooms or dwelling places and Jesus is preparing those and someday we're going to go and live in the Father's house. It's not here in this world. It's someplace else. 
The Beatitudes end with these words, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus urged his followers to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. You cannot read those passages, folks, without coming to the conclusion that Jesus is promising us life after death. But I really like this passage from the pen of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and, uh, and I want to read it to you this morning out of the message. It begins in verse 1, but I, I just like the way the message words it. Listen. For instance, we know that when these bodies of ours are taken down like tents and folded away, they will be replaced by resurrection bodies in heaven. God made, not handmade. And we'll never have to relocate our tents again. Sometimes we can hardly wait to move. And so we cry out in frustration. Compared to what's coming, living conditions around here seem like a stopover in an unfurnished shack. And we're just tired of it. We've been given a glimpse of the real thing. Our true home. Our resurrected bodies. The Spirit of God whets our appetite by giving us a taste of what's ahead. He puts a little of heaven in our hearts so that we'll never settle for less. That's why we live with such good cheer. You won't see us drooping our heads or dragging our feet. Cramped conditions here don't get us down. They only remind us of the spacious living conditions ahead. It's what we trust in but don't yet see that keeps us going. Do you suppose a few ruts in the road or rocks in the path are going to stop us? When the time comes, we'll be plenty ready to exchange exile for homecoming. Boy, I like that. You can just kind of sense Paul's excitement as he writes those words. You can't read that passage and conclude anything less than there is life after death. So if I believe that God is my creator and that this Bible is his oracle, his breath, his voice in print, then I must conclude there's more beyond. But that's not the only reason. I, I also believe in life after death because it's a part of the very nature or the character of God. You know what the Bible tells us about God? It says God is love. It doesn't say he is like love. It doesn't just say he is loving as a God. It says he is love. He is the embodiment of love. Now, folks, he created us as an expression of his love and to be the recipients of his love and hopefully to return his love. Does it then make any logical sense that after a brief lifetime in this world that God would discard us like yesterday's trash? Do we assume that we are merely a long-term divine experiment on this planet, that we are some terrestrial toy for God's amusement? If the grave ends all, then what possible explanation could there be for the death of Jesus Christ on the cross? What a waste. Like every other father, that I know at least, I would do anything to save, preserve, and extend the lives of my children and grandchildren. So if we as fallible human parents can be so committed to extending that loving relationship with our children, then don't you think that God who loves us more than we're capable of loving one another in this world has a much greater plan than we can imagine? It's just not in his character to stop loving us once the grave ends our life here. The Bible also tells us that God is light. In him there is no darkness. 
Bible says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses us from all sin. It is inconceivable that God would permanently leave us to the darkness of the grave if he is light. It's just not a part of his nature. It's not his character. And the Bible tells us that God is life. Jesus said that he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. That he's the bread of life. That he's the way, the truth, and the life. Is God's life so powerless that death can overwhelm it? What does that passage mean when we read that Jesus in his resurrected body is the fruit, first fruits of all those who sleep? Sleep being used as a euphemism for death. It means that the first fruits of the harvest were a sample of what was to come. And the first fruits of the harvest were always supposed to be given to God as a gift. So when we look at the resurrected body of Jesus and the Bible says, okay, take a good look. He's the first fruits. The rest of the harvest is yet to come, but it's going to look like that. If life in Christ isn't more powerful than death, then I don't understand the nature of God. You see, it is beyond his character and nature to let life fail at the grave. I'll tell you another reason why I believe in life after death, and that's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This, then, is my greatest confidence. The resurrection seals the deal for me, folks. Christianity is the only one that claims a current living Savior. Theologian R.C. Sproul put it this way, Moses could mediate the law, Mohammed could brandish a sword, Buddha could give personal counsel, Confucius could offer wise sayings, but none of these men was qualified to offer an atonement for the sins of the world. Jesus alone is qualified. Jesus alone has been raised. Now, how can we be sure he is still alive? I mean, do, do I really believe that 2,000 years ago this dead Jesus was resurrected to die no more? I do. I believe that with all of my heart. And the reason I believe it is because the evidence points in that direction. I've been telling you all month about people who have written books about the evidence for believing in Jesus Christ. Men like C.S. Lewis and men like Lee Strobel, they all started out as unbelievers, set about to write that this was the hoax of all history. And when they got to the evidence, they couldn't help but change their hearts and their lives, and they wrote books that defend the faith, not destroy the faith. Because when you really look at the evidence, that's the only thing you can come up with. How did that tomb become empty? I wish I had time this morning to go through all the evidence. I don't. That's why you need to dig on your own. That's why you need to do some reading on your own. Learn about that empty tomb. Suffice it to say, nobody ever produced a body. If the disciples had started preaching and the enemies of the cross had stolen the body of Jesus, they would have come dragging it out of the grave and saying, come on, guys, stop preaching that nonsense. Look here, who's in my arms? It's your dead Jesus. But nobody in history ever produced the body of Christ. Yeah, but what if it was the disciples that did this? Thing? What if they hid it, took him out of the tomb, and buried him somewhere else? That, folks is the other reason why I believe in life after death. It's because of what happened to the first century apostles who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. James was the first. He was beheaded. 
Matthew was killed with a sword in Ethiopia. Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt, being dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead. Luke was hanged on a cross in Greece. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Paul was beheaded in Rome. Jude, the brother of Jesus, was shot full of arrows when he refused to deny his faith. So says history. Charles Colson who was a part of the Nixon administration's debacle called Watergate, said that when all things were beginning to come down, that the, the, the men around Nixon developed a plan. It was to cover what they had done. And he said that plan was together for two weeks before John Dean agreed to turn state's evidence and then everything broke loose. And Colson says that this is the one thing that convinced him about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here it is in his own words. He says the real cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks. Two weeks! And then everybody else jumped shipped in order to save themselves. Now the fact is that all those around the president were facing was embarrassment, maybe prison. Nobody had their life at stake. But what about those disciples? Twelve powerless men, peasants really, they were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but they were facing beatings and stonings and execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before he was beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities to spill the beans? None did. Not one ever recanted what he knew he'd seen. I believe there is life after death because the disciples themselves gave their lives for that same faith. Well, you may not be convinced yet, and I understand that. But what, you know, what's your alternative? Yeah, just, I, they bury me in the grave and that's it. Boy, that, that's not fun. Isn't there a little bit of eternity set in your hearts? Don't you have a little bit of a longing that pulls you there? There are at least 12 multi-millionaire Americans who are looking forward to their lives being resurrected or restored. They have all made arrangements to have their bodies frozen so that somewhere down the road, 100, 200 years later, when the disease problems have been adjusted, you know, they can be thawed out, and those problems can be corrected, and they can have a, a brand new life. And they've all uh, set aside money for that particular cause. David Pizer is uh, 64 years old, and he figured that the roughly $10 million he'd left himself after all the compound interest had been added in will make him the richest man in the world when he wakes up. <laughs> I, don't, I would, couldn't even say if he wakes up. None of us could afford, I don't suspect, to be frozen, but it really wouldn't matter. Even if they discover a cure for the disease that takes our life and they bring us back and we're 65, 75, 85, how much more time do you think we have left anyway? Because nothing in this world lasts forever. We are mortal beings in this world. Even the people that Jesus raised from the dead in his earthly ministry died again. My, there's no hope in a second chance a hundred years from now? The book of Hebrews records this. And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, 
So also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly awaiting for him. He's coming again. It's appointed unto us once to die. Then comes the judgment, but he's coming to take us home. So here's the deal. You have a choice to make. The same Lord that promised us life with him also warned about life apart from him. And I believe that there is life or life after death, but the one in whom we place our faith determines where we will live that life after death. Don't you remember the promise in John 3, 16? We'll have eternal life. The verb will have means we've already got it. It means we're in possession of that everlasting life now. No, it doesn't mean we have it to its full extent. No, it doesn't mean it solves the problems or the burdens of this life. It just means we are in possession of it now. He has given us life that will continue. That's why the Corinthians passage says that the Holy Spirit's been given to us as a down payment on eternity. We're there. We've got it. That's what makes us homesick. That's where God has built into us. He's set eternity into our hearts. Don't you ever get homesick? Every time I go somewhere on a short-term mission trip, I get homesick. It's not that I don't enjoy what I do on those missions trips. It's just stepping off the plane and being alone in a foreign land without anybody that I know. It's eating food that's not fun. It's watching a snake charmer and praying that he can keep that cobra in that basket. I just get homesick for here. And for those I love. You know, there are days here I get a little homesick for that ultimate home. The twists and the turns of life remind me that I'm, I'm still on a mission trip in this world. And that's okay. I think God kind of likes it when we get homesick to see him. And there are moments when our homesickness becomes pretty acute. A child goes through a divorce. The doctor confirms that we have cancer. We lose our retirement because somebody in the company embezzled funds. Our, our spouse dies and we find ourselves alone at a fresh grave. We get a little homesick at those moments in time because, you see, God has set eternity in our hearts. Someday the journey will be over. And like a returning soldier drops his duffel bag on the floor when he sees his wife running to meet him, so we will drop our pain and sorrow and suffering and embarrassment and issues and problems and sin at the door when we see the Father running to meet us. Max Lucado writes, those you love will shout, those you know will applaud, but all the noise will cease when he cups your chin and says, welcome home. And with scarred hands, he'll wipe away every tear from your eyes. And you will dwell in the house of your Lord forever. Now, doesn't that sound like a whole lot better plan for the end than just simply the grave? Do you know him this morning? This one who loves you more than life itself, who died so that you wouldn't have to, who says, I want you and who you need desperately. I believe in life after death. I hope you do too. And I hope that you know that Jesus Christ is the one that can secure that.